everybody, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Train Like a Trooper podcast. We have just a fascinating guest with us today who has so much knowledge um, about a lot of historical things in our state. Uh, Roger Webb was the commissioner here at DPS from 1974 to 1978. Left here, went on to become president at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah. Went from there to become the president at the University of Central Oklahoma in Edmond. And in fact, the Forensic Science Institute there is named after him. A member of the Oklahoma Law Enforcement Hall of Fame and a billion other things. I could just keep going on and on and on about your accomplishments and, and everything that you've experienced. but. We'll, we'll keep it simple for there. Roger, oh, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Gosh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. I'm, I appreciate so much the invitation. Delighted to be here. And walking into the building today just brought back a flood of memories that were just wonderful that, uh, you know, I can hardly sort through them now thinking of all the issues that we discussed here and the wonderful people that I worked with. So thank you. I'm I'm so pleased to be here with you today. And anyone who, you know, loves the Highway Patrol and knows anything about the Highway Patrol, they hear those years, 1974 to 1978, they really are brought to the point where they think, wow, that there was a lot that happened with the patrol during that time. I know as troopers, uh, we talk about those, those years in our patrol school, and uh, it's just, it's a fascinating time in the patrol. Well, we made a lot of mistakes during those years, but we've got a few things right, fortunately, and uh, a lot of lessons were learned. And uh, I just um, I feel privileged to have had a chance to experience those times. So basically what we're saying is during your years here, you had a lot of downtime, right? <laughs> Man, when you started Not telling really. me all the things that happened while you were commissioner here, high-profile things in the state of Oklahoma. But before we get to all of that, your first job at DPS was in the mailroom. That's right. Uh, that's that's the only position that was available. Uh, Commissioner Bob Lester was. I wanted to work for him and learn from him. And um, he said, "Well, I'm 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 sorry. Uh, we have a vacancy downstairs in the mailroom." And I said, "I'll take it. I'll take it." It ended up two hundred fifty dollars a month, I think. But whatever it was, it was uh, it gave me a chance to uh, to get within the department and spend time with him, who uh, was a fascinating man, a wonderful man, original Highway Patrol School, and uh, so I learned so much working for uh, for Commissioner Lester during those days. Why did you want to work here? I guess, I think I grew up uh, in from high school, uh, fascinated by law enforcement and police story and of course you know the, the hardy boys and all the detective things that i could read books i i i got this really the strong interest in law enforcement and i um also uh kind of a nerd at reading that time and uh had a chance to go to washington for a period of time and was there when the Highway Safety Act of 1965 was passed, which required states have an implied consent law and a motor vehicle inspection law and a motorcycle helmet law. So I appealed to Commissioner Lester that, hey, hire me and I'll help you draft those bills and get those bills passed. Of course, I really had no credentials to do that. But uh, he uh, was tired of seeing me and did that. And so 
uh, we worked with him on those bills and worked with him at the legislature. They were passed, and he really pretty soon moved me out of out of sorting mail. I wasn't very good at that, I guess, and uh, ultimately became, I think, classified as an assistant to the commissioner. And I was there until I was appointed assistant commissioner, and then ultimately commissioner. You were pretty young when you were commissioner. I I was I, yes too young. I was I was thirty one. When I was appointed, wow! And um, it—I uh, probably look younger than that. I know working around veteran troopers and and other people who'd had so much rich experience in law enforcement, uh, they were very patient with me and consequently allowed me to tag along. And I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a, a tremendous amount from a gentleman named Pat Spear, who was um, director, actually. Commissioner of Public Safety of the Texas Department of Public Safety. He was a big six foot four inch Texas Ranger and somehow or another took me under his wing and I was involved in the International Association of Police of International Association of Police of Chiefs, IACP, and um, ultimately became chairman of the of the state police and highway patrol division of the IACP and got to travel around the country quite a bit working with states on law enforcement issues. But Pat Spear, Texas, was uh, also one of my mentors. Now it's time for our question of the day, brought to you by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Trooper Foster, people see troopers, and we all know the brown uniform, the brown shirt, the brown pants. Um, sometimes you see troopers in long sleeve shirts, sometimes in short sleeve, different kinds of hats. Why is that? So we have two different uniforms that we use. Actually, we have several different uniforms, but really our, what we call our Class A, we have a summer Class A uniform that you'll see troopers in the warm uh, months wear, and it's the short sleeve with the open collar. Uh, and it has a straw hat, um, and our straw hat is just that summer uniform. It's lighter material. It's not as heavy. And then in the wintertime, we have that heavier material, the long sleeves, the button with the with the tie. It's, it's more traditional looking. It's more, um, you know, heavier material for the cold weather, and that's really the reason we use it. Uh, I love the, you know, the long sleeve winter uniform. It looks really sharp and very professional. Um, you know, and more traditional, uh, but it really is a matter of, you know, warm versus cold. And, and that's the difference in the materials. Thanks, Trooper Foster. And now back to the podcast. We had lunch the other day and you kind of, you sort of brought a list with you of, of all the things that happened while you were commissioner. Um, I don't even know, I don't even know which one is the most fascinating because they're all they're all, I mean, I would say you, you can pick what we start with. Let's talk about the McAllister prison riot. Well, it was, um, that was certainly one of the most intense times in the history of the Highway Patrol. Uh, um, June 28, 1973, we uh, got a call from a warden um, that um, I was, now I was assistant commissioner at that time, right. uh, working for, for um, Commissioner Wayne Lawson um, about the, the riot had broken out. There had been rumors for at least a month. There had been talk about something's going to happen at McAllister. We're going to have, they're going to blow this place up. Um, and it did. 
I mean, it, it happened, and they were uh, there was a stabbing on the grounds of a guard, and a inmate got control of a mic and said, "This is going to be a revolution," and stirred up. There were eight hundred. 800 to 1,000 inmates, who never really a good count on that, but were involved in that. And it, um, three days, and it um, burned, they burned 20 buildings. Uh, there's more damage done to a prison in that, that a prison escape and riot than any prison break ever, more than Attica, Attica in New York, which is sort of a famous prison that where there was a, a bad escape. I think there were 10 hostages in that. And in McAllister, they'd taken about 28 hostages. Uh, the assistant warden was also taken as a hostage. So they held those guys and they were demanding um, more exercise equipment, better food, the typical thing, overcrowded conditions. And it was overcrowded. And they Quite frankly, if you're objective about it, they, they, the conditions were really not good at McAllister. McAllister was built in um, uh, 1911, and so at that time it made it 62 years old, and it was designed for about 1,100 inmates. There were over 2,000 at the time of the riot, so there was bad conditions there, and uh, they were... Um, making their demands. They had their hostages. They were threatening to kill hostages, but uh, waiting them out. Governor David Hall uh, was governor and had a spokesman named Ed Hardy who had done some national news network stuff. And so he was, the sp Ed Hardy was the spokesman, but David Hall was the governor and they ultimately, the inmates wanted to negotiate with him. He wouldn't do it, but he ultimately did. He negotiated with them and they worked out some deals with some better training for corrections officer to move people out of McAllister to other prisons in the state. And so the thing we got the, we, we, I mean, there were uh, a massive number of, of highway patrol cars and police cars around McAllister, the prison, if you can't imagine. But the thing was going up in smoke and you could see it for miles and miles away. And it was a, it was a bad time. Um, very intense time, but got out of that alive. So it, that was, you know, when I really kind of started my career seriously by coming out of that McAllister ride. And then staying in McAllister, what, not even a couple of years late? No, the same year was the, the great, the escape, what, eight to 10 of them escaped? It was, uh, I, yeah, yes, it was, I think I said 73, it was 71 was a prison riot, 73, um, uh, the the escape of um, nine inmates, Rex Brindley being the ringleader of that, and Rex Brindley was the most notorious inmate in McAllister, and he was wanting to live up to his reputation as being Oklahoma's gangline gangland outlaw, and uh, he had eight of his cronies. They had. Um, uh, through really Brindley's planning, had tunneled about 150 yards out through 11, seven grates that they'd cut through. And when they got to the final offense, the wall, they had torched it and got through and able to make their escape. And they were out loose. Uh, McAllister was the, the prison. Uh, ultimately, had fired the warden because of they didn't notify law enforcement. We didn't. We didn't hear about it 
at uh, DPS until 4.30 the next day, and they'd escaped at 1.30 in the morning. So they were out, and we thought, man, they could be, they could be anywhere. And uh, we started the hunt, and one by one began to capture those guys. They'd had this elaborate scheme to escape, to get out of OMAC, but after they got out of the walls, they didn't have a plan, <laughs> and they split up. They kind of they kind of split up in different different ways, and so but we ultimately they ultimately found them and some really wonderful law enforcement officers. Oklahoma National Guard helped us with helicopters, so we had helicopters and horses and men and people all over the woods around Stigler in that escape, and ultimately uh, Franklin and Jones, who were the two most hated inmates at McAllister, because they had. Had were involved in the slaying of Bill Walker, a trooper at Fountainhead Lodge. I killed, I killed Trooper Walker and um, a guy named W.L. Pickens, who was um, uh, um, the park superintendent and a game ranger that was there at, at, the landing, at a landing strip there at Fountainhead Lodge. So Franklin and Jones were notorious, and they were out and hated and, and plus, these other guys were all pretty bad felons, too. And you talk about panic in a community all around that eastern Oklahoma town of Stigler and McAllister. People were scared to death. And it was important that those guys get caught. But every better person that we had available at DPS was there uh, at one time or other during the nine days that we were out and ultimately... I think the escape was like on the 21st of June. By the 3rd of July, we were, guys were getting pretty tired, and we needed people back on the roads back home to work the 4th of July holiday. And uh, so I was getting ready, quite frankly, to shut down the search, or really to, to phase it way back when we the last one, which was Brindley, was, was caught. And... Uh, he was captured in a really, not in a heroic way. <laughs> we, um, uh, he, was, he walked into a little store up by Canadian. It's sort of a little gro- mom-and-pop grocery store. And he gave himself up. He said, I don't need a telephone. He wanted to call in and say he'd, he, the guy he was sick. He was literally had been eaten up by ticks and chiggers. <laughs> I mean, literally. He'd been on the ground for nine days. And uh, he didn't have any off, which, which we did have have a supply of uh, repellent. But um, so he was he was the last one captured, and he this was his second escape. He'd escaped about three years earlier, and actually got as far as Shreveport, Louisiana. We was recaptured again. But Rex Brindley and Franklin and Jones were were part of this notorious crew, and others that. Um, were the nine escapees. Wow. And I know you ta- we talked about, so the, our TAC team was formed when you were commissioner. Was it, was it incidents like this that led to that formation? It definitely was. It, it, in fact, it was, it was that event because during this nine-day period, you'd get uh, tips from people. Well, we, we saw them out here. We saw them here. And there was a, a tip that came in actually through chief of police at Tulsa, Jack Purdy. Uh, really a reliable source, and he'd had a, he had a source that said that they had seen them go into a cabin which was near Lake Eufaula, 
and had it spotted. So we had uh, to get a group of guys uh, to to go surround that house and to try to deal with Brindley and not kill anybody else. And uh, we came very close. This was a little man and woman who were had to be in their 80s and uh, that had the house. And ultimately, you know, we had the bullhorns and, you know, come out, come out. And these cars parked all around the house. And the two little couple came out with their hands up. Don't shoot, don't shoot. And then no Brindley. I mean, he was not, not there. And nothing happened to those, you know, we didn't have any accidents or any any shooting. People were pretty disciplined. But I realized, hey, we need to have a unit who is skilled in doing that. And SWAT units were appearing in Los Angeles and around. And so we were able to get information about them, and he started the, the TAC team. Jerry Cook, by the way, was one of the guys who was with us at that time, I remember. And Jerry came back, and I think he was involved, one of the ones involved in the, the, the TAC unit later on. So important, uh, state of Oklahoma. You know, we we're utilized over and over and over again in these uh, smaller communities and outside like that, and teams like that. And the training, separate uh, from the stuff that we do all the time, is is so important for us. You know, and I I think about uh, you know when you talk about the the prison riots and things like that. I talked to a trooper that he said one of his first assignments was to go to that, that prison riot. He, he said they took him on a helicopter and they dropped him right on the roof of that thing. And he's, oh, that's how he learned, you know, and men and women that have paved the way like that for the, you know, us that are working it now, we, we sure appreciate that. And well, it's, that's, that is, that is true, Eric. And, you know, we had everybody who goes through patrol school comes out and is disciplined and, and, and has can follow orders, but you really need a, an elite trained group to deal in those special situations. And uh, that's what the tactical unit has become and is really a valuable. It, it can prevent violence from happening and uh, quell a, a situation quickly yeah. if it's done right. Yes. Yes. And you set the stage for that. And, you know, over the last year, our tech team has had a lot of, I mean, they have been nonstop almost over the last year just with, you know, all the different things that have been going on. So, yeah, we appreciate you setting the stage oh, for that. Well, you... yeah, we did. We just kind of laid the laid the the footwork where it could be done. But but uh, men and women who served in that, um, and, and all the all the divisions of the Highway Patrol, have just I have such great respect and gratitude for what they've done through the years. Now it's time for the Highway Safety Update brought to you by the Oklahoma Highway Safety Office. Let's compare 1975 crash statistics to 2019 statistics. In Oklahoma in 1975, Fridays were the most likely day for a crash. That holds true in 2019, but the most likely day for a fatality crash in 1975 was on a Saturday, compared to Fridays in 2019. The most likely time for a fatality crash in 1975 was between 8 and 9 p.m., compared to between 5 and 6 p.m. in 2019. The number of crashes in 1975 and 2019 are about the same, but the number of drivers involved in those crashes increased by almost 30,000 in 2019. This is likely due to more crashes involving multiple vehicles compared to a lot of single vehicle crashes in 1975. 
one percentage that remains unchanged since 1975, 67% of all persons killed in crashes in Oklahoma were male. Now, that's a lot of numbers thrown out quickly. For a more detailed look at this comparison and more crash statistics, visit ohso.ok.gov. And now, back to the podcast. So let's talk about the um, Oklahoma City police walkout. You had to deal with that as well. Well, we did. Uh, I.G. Purser was the chief of police, Oklahoma City, a really a good officer and a good man. Um, one day, about four o'clock, he called commissioner's office and said, I mean, his words were, Roger, my guys walked out on me and we need help. I mean, it just was like that. 400 officers came in and threw their badges down on his desk and walked off the job. And so Oklahoma City was left without any law enforcement at all. And so we immediately put together some people to go serve uh, in Oklahoma City. And it was... um, it was sort of a keystone cop deal, quite frankly, with us, because we had had troopers getting calls. Uh, could you come to this disturbance at uh, 23rd and Lottie? And, you know, trooper, had, you know, coming in from Guymon, had no idea <laughs> where 23rd and Lottie was. And you didn't have the GPS on their phones, No, right? he, there was no, <laughs> no Siri working at that time or, or GPS. Uh, so it was, uh, it was really chaotic, but we're able to kind of, um, hold the fort for a while, 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 um, the mayor of Oklahoma city was named Patience Ladding. She was a lady who was, was plenty tough. And, uh, so I guess, um, Mayor Ladding and, uh, and Chief Purser were able to negotiate whatever the grievances were with uh, Oklahoma City Police Department, and uh, we were relieved of some duty that <laughs> we really didn't need to be in. How long did that last? How long did you guys have to cover uh, Oklahoma City? It was about two days. Okay, that's enough. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it was about. You talk about manpower. You know, right now, you know, in Troop A, you know, you know, we're looking at forty-five, fifty guys for seven counties, and you're talking about, you know, a force of Oklahoma City Police Department. Uh, that's significant to be able to handle. Oh, it, it, it is. And you have, you know, growing your respect for what people on the other side are doing. And uh, I know our people had, had a lot of respect for uh, municipal officers after having that that experience. And Oklahoma City was glad to see us go, and uh, we were <laughs> glad to, to get back home. <laughs> All right, so something else really very high profile uh, nationwide that you dealt with when you were commissioner is the um, the Karen Silkwood mystery. I, and I guess it's still out there today. Right. Um, yes, um, they at, at that time, and I'm not sure if it you ha- it happens still today, but every morning there would be a what it called the blue sheet that would be on my desk, and it had names of fatalities that occurred overnight. And um, I saw one morning the name of this person named Karen Silkwood, which didn't ring a bell, along with a couple others who had, who also had, had been killed that day. And uh, then I started getting phone calls 
coming in about, hey, can you tell us about this Silkwood accident? And I what Silkwood accident? I'm not that sure. So I called uh, a guy named George Moore, who's lieutenant in charge of accident records at that time. And uh, I said, George, what do you know about this accident? And uh, he didn't really know anything about it. But ultimately, we found out that it was um, a, a, a fatal accident involving a young lady named Karen Silkwood, who was working at up in Crescent at the Kerr-McGee nuclear facility up there. And apparently she had been involved with um, uh, a writer or a, a, a news guy from the New York Times who was at the Hilton Inn, and she was to drive in after her shift to meet him, meet this, this reporter, and had with her some documents that were supposedly documents that would indict Kerr McGee for hand, their handling of uh, nuclear power there in an unsafe manner. <clears throat> so this became really big news quickly. We had a press conference the next day um, in the training center, and I'd never seen so many reporters at that time. I mean, they were in here all over, and uh, people interested about Karen Silkwood and her case and how she was murdered. The, the claim was that instead of, which happened, she just drove off the road into a culvert and killed her. She was in a little Corvette, Corvair at that time, and um, um, had been sleep deprived for about two days. It had alcohol and had some drugs in her. And we got had that we knew what had killed what her problem was. She just went to sleep, fell off the, went off the roadway into the culvert, and her car hit the culvert and it killed her. But the claim was that they were advancing was that another car, a mysterious car, came up from behind and hit her and rammed her off the road, and then whoever was that person was got in the backseat of her car and got these documents, got the papers about Kerr McGee, and it was all done as part of a conspiracy with this great Oklahoma oil company uh, against this poor little lady named Karen Silkwood, who was totally innocent. Stories were done about Karen on by BBC, of course, New York Times, uh, 60 Minutes sent a crew down to film on it. Uh, there was a, ABC had a, a news program like 60 Minutes called the the Reasoner Report, and so they came down and did uh, film and shot film and investigated this death of Karen. Books were written, movies were produced, Cher played, Cher played Karen Silkwood in the movie, and she was made to be Joan of Arc, literally a, a, a real hero, a fascinating person. And she may have been, I'm not trying to diminish her and her role at all, but I just disagree with how the accident occurred. Fortunately, on, on our side, we had uh, Larry Owen, who was uh, really a wonderful accident investigator, asked Larry if he would go out and he would check the accident report because this was a rookie trooper that had, had done the investigation. And I said, you know, we need to see whether we're right. And... Um, and and Larry, as well as George Moore and others, said, "Yeah, this was a, it was a good investigation, and this is what happened." 
and were able to stand on that and stand in scrutiny in court. Kermagee was was sued. Uh, he brought a, a really a kind of a famous lawyer from uh, kind of a cowboy lawyer from Wyoming who came in and they sued them. And I think it was something from seven to ten million dollars. Ultimately, the case was was settled. But I mean, we had a had a, a long siege of worrying about nothing but Karen Silkwood. <laughs> Well, when you come in, you see this name on your report. Little did you know, you begin calls from all over that the world. One blue sheet. I wish I'd have missed. <laughs> wow. So, what one of the things that you said stuck with you probably the most from your time here was um, the Girl Scout murders. Yes. Um, yeah. Still, I mean, to this day, you know, I have nightmares about about that. Uh, you know, three little girls from Tulsa, one from Broken Arrow, two from Tulsa, one from Broken Arrow that went over to Camp Scott, which was a little Girl Scout camp way over near um, Grove, Oklahoma, north of Tahlequah, um, and had been there really since the 1920s, you know, old-time Girl Scout camp. A lot of Tulsa girls would get to go to it. And so these, this particular night, this was in 1977, I believe. First night at camp, there were 10 tents that were around a circle, and um, they were the tent, they were the 10th tent that was sort of separated a little bit from the others. But it was a, um, some reason, the three little girls, and they were age like 11, 12, and 13, maybe, they were really young, were in the, the tent, no supervisor, no no scout leader was in the tent with them. I, I don't necessarily understand that. Um, but they were um, the, the next, they were, they were killed in the nighttime. And the next morning, one of the camp scout leaders was going down to, to shower and walked by and saw that these girls were laying on the, on, there on the floor. Actually, no. Excuse me. They were they had been pulled out and laying in the woods, about oh about fifty yards, I guess, from where the tents were. And they saw them laying in the woods. And um, the sheriff was called at that time and had primary jurisdiction over the the crime scene. And again, this is a made for television kind of or the movie screen. A horrible case. Um, he um, didn't invite anybody to come in and help with the, the case, and they literally obliterated the crime scene. It rained hard the night of the of their death, and so there were tracks, boot tracks, and and th- things that were scattered. They really had had no training at all in preserving a crime scene. And consequently, we never really were able to make a good case. The sheriff, in his mind, thought that the that the killer was a guy by the name of Gene Leroy Hart. Hart had been arrested on a and convicted on a on a rape matter that was sort of a high school sweetheart type thing. He was a big football star uh, at Locust Grove, and um, um, had had been convicted, but he had escaped from the Mays County 
jail and had been out on the loose for months and, and they thought was in the area. So they immediately assumed Hart was the perpetrator of these deaths. The girls had been strangled. How you're able to kill three little girls, even if they're little, without them screaming and getting the attention of it, I'm not really sure how how you could do that. But but he was he was considered their number one suspect, and um, there was a you know huge manhunt. I mean, and it was kind of a manhunt like you would see that might have happened in the 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 twenties or maybe even before the turn of the century where people were going out with, I mean, it's like pitchforks and shotguns and, you know, we're going to get that guy. Uh, in this case, we're going to get that Indian uh, who killed these little girls. And um, um, Hart was not found. And, um, but we had a crime scene there and trying to make a case. Ultimately, he was ultimately after about a year, he was captured in a cabin near Tahlequah and was uh, was taken to trial. Uh, we couldn't have the trial in Mays County because prejudicial of the jury, so much publicity had occurred in that county. So it was in Tulsa that he was tried. Really a good district attorney up there, uh, Buddy Fallis, prosecuted the case, did a good job, but the jury came back with a with a innocent that, that said that, that Hart had not killed the little girls. Again, it was almost like an O.J. Simpson kind of a thing. It ultimately ended up that way. But uh, he was exonerated on that. But he was still had the, the rape charge, and so he went back to prison. And um, ultimately, in a few days, he mysteriously fell ill on the prison grounds and dead. You know, I'm not totally sure how. How that happened, but uh, probably it was inmate justice that, that occurred there for Hart. Beside the little girls, the tragedy and of the, the parents of those little girls and, you know, remembering them and their faces, just children, babies almost. Um, the, the fact that we had not, as a state, trained law enforcement officers to to how to handle a crime scene. You know, I made the vow, if I ever have an opportunity to be anywhere where we can we can provide training for law enforcement, I want to be able to do that. And that ultimately led to the opportunity that I had at UCO when I was president of starting a forensic science program, uh, which we did. And that works because of a guy by the name of Dwight Adams who really wrote the, the book on DNA evidence, and he was able to hire a world-class faculty to come in from the FBI. He was assistant. He was assistant director of FBI. And I waited. I, I made two or three trips back to Quantico to see him to try to convince him to retire and come down and start our program, and ultimately he did. And he built that program in today to really, I think, the top program in the country. So it's a really a wonderful, wonderful program. But that really was the, the genesis of that started as a result of the Girl Scout killings in Fort Scott. So I know we talk, you briefly mentioned um, that we lost five troopers during your time here. 
And um, one of those was what people refer to as the darkest day in the history of OHP is Caddo Kennefic. Indeed. And that happened while you were commissioner. It, it did. Um, we were, um, we'd received notice about two escapees from McAllister named, their last names are Dennis and Lan- Lancaster and Dennis. And um, they were, they escaped and uh, um, we knew they were dangerous. And so there was a search that went out for them over three states, Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma. And um, they, some, and I'm not really sure exactly how they got transportation from the, from the jail, from McAllister down to Shreveport and where in places they went to, they, they were in Texas, but they somehow or another came back home to Oklahoma down in Bryan County. Part of the our, the network that we had to set up was using every available person we could. We had two troopers who were had been working in this size and weight division named Pappy Summers and Bill Young. They were uh, experienced troopers. They were they were they were veterans, but they were not trained to be out on the road and to be in gunfights. But they managed. They had the unfortunate or fortunate task of they stopped um, Dennis and Franklin on a county road, and then they were they were killed in a gunfight. And they they fled from, this is near Kennefect, which was near, not that far from Durant, north of Durant, in Bryan County. And so they came back into, the guys came back into Caddo, came back into Caddo, and um, this time they were met by a trooper who was uh, trained and, and younger, and Pat Grimes incredible young guy and um and and pat was able to shoot them dead but in the process he was also killed so we lost we lost pappy and bill young and and uh, and and pat grimes too it was, it was just a horrible horrible occasion for the highway patrol and for oklahoma i mean so much that happened while you were commissioner and you said you said I'm sure a lot of lessons learned, and and during your time, a lot of the things that happened paved the way and shaped like what we do now and what came after. Well, you know more about that than 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 I do as to what's happened uh, since then. But um, there were again, there were there are many things that that we're able to deal with and we learn from, and um, learning learning on the fly uh, much of it. But but the reason that it worked is the fact that we had such professional people serving in the positions of, of trooper. I'd started to say men, but we also I got the, got the privilege of hiring the first two female troopers too. Oh, very cool. Frida Daughtery and, uh, and Tanya, Tony or Tanya Tatum. Frida was from, from Vanita and Tanya from, or Tatum from, uh, from Tulsa. And um, to make that happen, I had to change the statute because the statute – even at that time, was originally written to where you had to be a male citizen of Oklahoma, and had to have a certain height and weight, and it, you know, obviously you couldn't be a female and be on the patrol. So it was time that we modernized those laws. We got that law changed and got women, our men and women who were here that were so, uh, you know, so professional, and it built the image. Today, Eric, the Highway Patrol has this image in Oklahoma, and I really think throughout the country, as being a top-rate law enforcement outfit. It does. Well-respected. 
And, and that's not by accident. It's because of, actually, I go back to the very first highway patrol school, to the governor, E.W. Marlin, who um, was concerned about the growing number of deaths on the highways. And Oklahoma didn't have many highways in 1937, but we had a few, mostly dirt roads. But we had a lot of deaths. There were estimated 600,000 vehicles in Oklahoma in 1937, we had no statewide law enforcement at all. So um, if there was any crime that occurred in Oklahoma, either bank robbers, yeah. and there were a lot of bank robbers, Oklahoma right. became a haven for bank robbers and for criminals during those years. And we were under the, the really the federal marshal out of Fort Smith, which Isaac, Judge Isaac Parker's jurisdiction. But that's what we had. And so Marlins said, we need a statewide organization, a crime organization. Well, people didn't, Oklahoma did not want a, a state crime fighting agency like a state police. But Marlin was smart in that he, he said, we're going to start an organization built on, on a service and protection. And, and that's what it was. That first school, highway patrolman, and, and mind you, you have to understand the times. Uh, now, I go back a long way. I was not alive then, but I do know that during the 30s, they were rough times in this country. It's a Great Depression. It's a dust bowl. Half of Oklahoma was really unemployed because of the dusty conditions, you know, people leaving Oklahoma you know, packing up on the top of their Model Ts and going to California. Anyway, these were tough times. So about 500 guys applied for the new Highway Patrol School. 125 were selected out of the 500. 125 were selected, but 85 graduated from that first school. And because of those people who were in that first school, and I had the chance of, of getting to know, you know, the Bob Lesters and the O.K. Bivens and the Carl Tylers and some of those guys who were in that first highway patrol school who really came out with a service attitude. We're going to protect people. They, they carried around in their, in, their, in their patrol units a two-gallon two tank of gas or a little can of gas, a tow chain, and um, tools. And they, you know, fixed tires is what they did. I mean, you had a lot of blowouts on those old, old dirty, uh, rocky roads in Oklahoma. They spent a lot of time out assisting people. I think I, I remember reading um, that first year they, they gave 170,000 warnings and made 1,000 arrests. They were there really to help people. Right. And it was because that helping service attitude mm -hmm. that was ingrained early on by those people. Um, the Highway Patrol got the image of being our friends. I mean, they're going to, we need them out here. They're going to protect us and help us if we get in trouble. And that really has permeated through the decades. It has, yeah. We still see that, you know, out in the in rural areas, you, you'll find people all the time that just, that's their sentiment of the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, you know. And then things like, you know, you see these situations that occur where you had to start like a tack team and those things. And then we've grown from that first step yeah. to where we use it 
um, all the time in areas where we can assist, you know, these other agencies. Uh, it just, we have value in the state of Oklahoma still today because of those men and women uh, and their professionalism and their courtesy and their, you know, holding to their guns in, in a hard situation. They do that. And, uh, and I'm grateful for those men and women who paved the way for guys like me, you know, to be able to, to do a tough job now. But, you know, we look at things and we say, well, it's tough right now, but it's been tough before, right? right. It just changes, changes shape sometimes. Uh, but we're still doing the same, same thing. Well, thank you, Eric. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that we have people like you who, who are here today with the patrol, um, actively do after interfacing with the public and understanding that, that heritage and that legacy that you have. And that is, that is so important. If, um, you know, I studied a lot of police agencies around the country and if, if ever they become like crime busters, if, you know, they, where you have the, the image of being, um, strong arming people, it's, it's, excuse me, so much different than this agency, which was a, was a helping, supporting, protecting, service and protection of the people of the state of Oklahoma is, is really what was done then, and that carries over today. But the people like Robert R. Lester and others who were in that first patrol school really owe a debt of gratitude. Yeah, And we owe a debt of gratitude to former leaders like you as well. Yes, for sure. For definitely. sure. Well, we really appreciate you coming in and talking. We could we could be here all day long. We could do what an eight ten hour podcast listening to your stories. I think. Well, we already be did so an bored. hour before you turn the the That's microphones right, we on. Did. You're just talking. We did. Yeah, oh I love man, it. I could listen to you forever. It's very fascinating, um, and we we appreciate you sharing those stories with us and in in your knowledge and and just the service that you provided well, to DPS. Thank you, Sarah. I mean, you you know you find this with with retired troopers or people who've been a part of the agency it's always with you and you never you never lose that that interest and that uh camaraderie that's there and i'm uh, thankful i've had a chance to, to continue uh, being part of some things and and uh nationally and i'm i serve on the oklahoma crime commission which is the osbi board and uh, understand what great work is being done out of the OSBI in Oklahoma and how fortunate Oklahoma is to have that agency as well as DPS going here. And so we're well served in Oklahoma from a law enforcement standpoint, but this is the jewel, Department of Public Safety. And again, thank you for inviting me out today. Yes, thank you for your time. We appreciate it.